0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Friday morning session uh, with uh, Dr. Shriver, uh, giving you updates on uh, COVID-19. What's new? The good, the bad, and the ugly, which he always talks about. I'm not sure he'll have a slide to that effect today. Yeah. He's kind of running out of languages. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also uh, just really fortunate to have, uh, you know, somebody who's a uh, uh, incredibly uh, well-known nationally, Dr. Perry Glass, uh, and uh, I'll do uh, just a brief introduction of, of you know who she is and 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 you know we just just you'll understand why uh, we were very pleased that she was able to accept this invitation to be part of this Friday morning session. Um, in in terms of COVID, from my perspective, obviously we're in the midst of a, a very difficult time in our nation. I think John will echo that, and we have to be really careful and cognizant of of what's going on in our surroundings and how do we take care of ourselves, how do we take care of our team members, our family members, because it it is a very high risk time for for all of us. Uh, Good news, the vaccine is getting rolled out. Uh, Connecticut has done a good job. I think we're going to go even further. And uh, as you know, in Connecticut now, if you're over the age of 75, you can sign up to get the vaccine. Uh, that's uh, an additional, I believe the number is something like 277,000 citizens in Connecticut are over the age of 75. So if you have family members in your team, uh, they can go on the website and DPH and actually sign up. And I know for a fact that by signing up uh, yesterday, people were able to log in and get to get vaccinated today or tomorrow in various locations throughout the hospital, including Connecticut Children's. Connecticut Children's will, if you sign up, you will find a location for your seventy-five. Year old team member that can actually come in and get the vaccine here. So we're very pleased that that's moving forward. And uh, you know, this will be again human ingenuity and engineering. I heard of a place, uh, Arizona, was vaccinating in their drive through site about 1500 people per hour. Uh, just think of that. You know, that's a life saving maneuver. So John will tell us a little bit about that as well. Uh, let me say a couple things about the Dr. Perry class. Uh, she is the uh, uh, best thing is she, she trained in pediatric infectious diseases, so that makes her immediately one somebody that John and I like a lot uh, at, at Boston Children's. But that's not what she does right now, although she is certainly still involved in infectious disease. Uh, she's currently a professor of journalism and pediatrics at uh, New York University and co-director of the NYU Florence. Uh, she attended Harvard Medical School and compl- uh, completed her residency in pediatrics and fellowship in infectious disease at Children's Hospital in Boston. She writes the weekly column, the checkup for the New York Times science section. She has written extensively about medicine, children, literacy, and and knitting. That's another important piece of her life history. Her new book, uh, A Good Time to Be Born, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future is an account of how victories over infant and child mortality have changed the world. Uh, She began writing about medicine and about medical training when she was a medical student. And even before that, actually, in her life history, her accounts were collected in her two books, and not entirely benign procedure. Four years as a medical student and baby doctor, a pediatrician's training, which were originally published in 87 and 1992, and we were reissued as classics of the genre and updated editions in 2010. Her more, most recent book of medical of uh, uh, medical journalism, "Treatment Kind and Fair: Letters to a Young Doctor." Uh, her medical journalism has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including. The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, The New England Journal of Medicine, and Harvard Medicine, amongst others. Her other nonfiction includes Every Mother is a Daughter, The the Never Ending Quest for Success, Inner Peace and Reality, and uh, Inner Peace and a Really Clean Kitchen. I love that title, which she co authored with her mother, Sheila Solomon Class, uh, and Quirky Kids Understanding and Supporting Your Child with Development Differences, which she co authored with Eileen Costello, and which will come out in a new edition from the American Academy of Pediatrics in in 2021. She can tell us if actually it's already out. Uh, Dr. Perry is also uh, the National Medical Director of Reach Out and Read, a national program that all of you know promotes uh, early literacy through pediatric primary care. Really, really important work uh, with guidance about reading aloud for parents. I think you've heard Jim Schmerling and Kathy Wiley who championed this here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, She ran the National Center from its inception through 2006 during which time the program grew from a single site to a national program with thousands of sites serving millions of children. The program now reaches 4.8 million children a year, 80% of whom are growing up in poverty. So important. And I think this is something that, that really she's championed. And I thank you for doing that, Dr. Cassidy. It's really fantastic. Uh, she has received numerous awards, too many to tell you in, in this short time. And, uh, you know, what I can say is that she is, uh, uh, you know, she is, a champion for children in so many ways. And we're just so pleased that we have her uh, for this morning's session. And we're gonna learn about how pediatricians are fending off coronavirus myths. That's gonna be so important to get her insight. So I'm gonna pass it on. I'm sorry it took a little bit longer, but I think it's so important to know who she is. And so grateful, Dr. Klaas, that you were able to join us along with Dr. Shriver. I think you'll enjoy John's presentation. He's also uh, incredibly gifted at, at sharing information giving us hope with reality. So I'm gonna pass it on to John first and then we'll go to Dr. Class. John.
1: Uh, thank you Juan and uh, welcome New England and uh, welcome Connecticut and uh, those of you who are in other states. Uh, it's been a few weeks uh, since we've been together and uh, uh, there's a lot to catch up on um, and a lot's happened. Uh, some good, some not so good. So let's move ahead, next slide. Uh, this winter, I know uh, many of us have sort of felt like it's an endless trudge isolated, um, alone, uh, you know, the deep snow and you're sort of weighed down. <laughs> that is sort of one view of what the winter of 2020 was like, next, but um, I'm giving you a different view. The winter of 2021 uh, is uh, the healthcare teams all over the country. Uh, you have children's hospital here and there's one I also lifted off the internet. Um, an amazing response to the, one of the world's biggest crises in our lifetimes, obviously in history and I think American healthcare personnel of every walk of life, race, creed, color, and religion have come to the plate and done what we needed to do. And so I think I wanna leave you thinking, yes, it's been a long winter and it's gonna be longer, but we are all part of an amazing team. Uh, perhaps uh, the, uh, these people that you see in these slides will be considered by history of one of the great generations of Americans. So next. Um, so as we expected, uh, holiday travel caused surges. And you can see when I left you, I, actually, it's been almost a month. We were at December 18th before the holidays. You can see we had that uh, Thanksgiving peak. You dropped and then everybody traveled Thanksgiving and it shot up to 200,000 cases a day in the United States. Unfortunately, you can see we had a second peak. People traveled for Christmas and New Year's and then the cases shot up and we were at 300,000 cases a day. So this is not good news, and um, I think also reflects some exhaustion uh, with um, the uh, rules that need to be in place to try to get this under control, and quite frankly, the state-by-state variation uh, in management of this. Next. Now, the hospitalizations uh, correspondingly have risen. You can see we left on the 18th of December when I saw you last around 100,000 people in the United States hospitalized with COVID and we're well above that. We're heading to 200,000 and we are going to hit a, a place much like England is hitting where there are just no hospital beds in some States. And uh, that results in higher mortality, obviously, because people get triaged and you just can't manage them in the ICU setting because you don't have any ICU beds and the death rate will go up. Then you'll see that that's already happening in the United States. And so, This is not sustainable and a vaccine um, being rolled out will not stop this. It's just not in time. We're going to also need to have double down on public health, common sense public health. So I think um, uh, this hospitalization curve is one to watch very carefully. We need to get that curve blunted. Next. And as you know, death rates lag. um, Who thought back in uh, the 18th of December, I showed you we were kind of around 2,000 a day with maybe 3,000 a day, it was 9-11 every day. And now we're 4,000 deaths a day. So, and that will get worse as the hospitals fill up because you just can't manage the very sick COVID patients the way you would like. So I think, um, uh, you know, this is a, an absolute five alarm fire nationally. Um, the country appears to have been distracted from these numbers, and as you'll see, I'm gonna make a quote later on, there's some leadership people who just don't seem to really believe that this is happening. So uh, sadly, um, I expect uh, that the death rate will continue to rise and plateau off in the next month. Next. Now, Connecticut um, has sort of stabilized out. You probably won't remember the numbers from last month, but these are similar. They've gone down in a couple of areas and gone up in Windham County. Uh, which is a, one of the hottest area in Connecticut right now. Now, I looked at this just a couple of days ago. We were around 8% test positivity, but I, I suspect it's higher than that. I, I think that's what we know. It's probably around 10% of the tests are positive. So community spread is rampant in Connecticut right now, and it's very important, as exhausted as people are, and as immunizations roll out, it's going to be very important to us to try to sustain wearing a mask and physical distancing and hand washing and the common sense procedures because uh, it, it, this just won't be impacted fast enough by immunization. And remember, for immunization impact, we're going to need to get to a herd immunity level, which is going to be around 60-70% of the population immune. It's going to take months for us to get there. Next. Now Connecticut, um, as you see, has sort of leveled out. Um, these are the new cases uh, on the on my left, and uh, by January, although it shot up after the holidays, you see that drop, and then the holidays and people traveled, and it shot up again. It does seem to be leveling out a little bit, and it Ditto with the death rate. Um, you know, we've had a, some days with over a hundred deaths a day, but in general, I'm optimistic that we might be peaking out in Connecticut. Next. Now the hospitalizations show the same idea. They're leveling out. Um, About 1,200 people are in-house across the state with COVID and I think it seems to be stabilizing out. It's gonna be very important, uh, as I said, for us to continue our public health measures to keep this down as we immunize people so we're not immunizing in a crisis environment. So again, I think this is good news uh, for Connecticut. Next. Now, unfortunately, um, it's not true across New England. Rhode Island continues to be one of the national hotspots, and these are remarkable statistics. Uh, It's got a population of a million. About one in 10 of Rhode Islanders have been infected, and one in 500 have died. Uh, These are remarkable statistics. Uh, I, I cannot imagine any war that gave this sort of number of deaths in, in Rhode Island. And, and so I, I think, again, very close to us, we have areas that are struggling uh, to get the pandemic under control, and where deaths and infections uh, are really quite high. Next. Now, these um, the death rate nationally, I know you guys have watched the news, and I just showed you it's 4,000 a day. It doesn't take much math to figure out that we're going to exceed 500,000 deaths um, in the United States. And I I showed you last month, the United States military deaths in World War II were 407,000. We will be beyond that shortly. And so these are, again, remarkable statistics. I think um, I wrap my head around this and and feel that probably a couple hundred thousand or more of this were preventable. Uh, Had we had a more focused national campaign in which... um, all of our leaders said the same thing and uh, we, we encouraged our population to do the right thing in terms of public health. I think we would have had many less deaths. It's a sad reflection on where we are as a country right now. I also think uh, that each one of these people uh, had family and a loved one. And you saw last month, you know, we've had some of our own um, team members share uh, their loved ones who've died from COVID. And we showed some pictures last month. And It's important for us to understand these are not anonymous numbers. Each one of these were Americans who had family, loved ones, and uh, will not be with us anymore because of this virus. Next. So what's new with the virus? This is a fascinating pathogen. As Paul Offit said last week, uh, it's really an unusual virus. And um, I think you can tell this virus has not been adapted to humans for centuries. This is a very capricious an unpredictable virus right now. Next. Now, the risk of variants, that would be mutations, has been a big focus in Europe. Uh, We seem to be asleep at the switch here in the United States, which is not where I'm used to have us being, but the Europeans have really dived in on this. Next, and they've been surveying very aggressively for mutations. Now, these are the mutations so far that the EU has focused on. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the UK mutation shortly. Uh, But uh, there are some worries. For example, you remember we talked about the Danish mink mutation and that transmitted to humans and spread in the community and they euthanized the entire mink farm population in Denmark. Now we've had spread in the minks in the United States and now the spread has gone into wild minks. And we do not know. Um, I've not seen the data on what that virus in the wild minks is mutating. So you know we've sort of lost track of it um the, in denmark they were very aggressive it was unpopular i can tell you to euthanize all those makes but probably the right thing to do to, to prevent spread of the new mutation next now the one i want to talk about is the uk mutation b117 uh, that is the variant in the united kingdom that appears to be more infectious and is one of the reasons the uk as an enormous increase in number of cases. It's, it's approximately 50% more contagious. Now, this um, mutation is N501Y in the, in, uh, in the spike protein. And I want to show you where it is. If you look at the spike protein, the mutations that led to the B117 variant, it's actually several. And um, that apparently enhances binding to the ACE2 receptor in our human cells. And the virus in lower inoculum appears to be able to bind to the ACE2 receptor and replicate. It's probably why it's more contagious. So you had a change in the RNA sequence. Remember, you have billions of viruses replicating. It's a sloppy replication. That's what viruses do. And and there's mutations, and some of them by chance are going to be enhanced binding, and then you'll have that mutation take off. And you know, this is evolution and natural selection at work. Um, If anyone who doesn't believe in evolution should just look at these viruses. So the N501Y mutation is the one in the UK. It's causing more, uh, more advanced, uh, harder binding to the ACE2 receptor and it's much more contagious. The R value, remember the R value is the number of people on average who can get infected by one person is higher than the variant we've been used to in the United States. Now there's another mutation in the South African strain that, that also has N501Y, but has additional mutations. I'm gonna show you in a sec, next please. So this mutation in the UK has an increased R value with more rapid spread, better binding of the spike protein to the ACE2 receptor, but there are no data showing increased variants. It doesn't seem to, to kill more. It doesn't seem to cause worse pneumonia. It just is more contagious. Now the good news for us so far is that there's a new preliminary data, it's brand new that shows that post-vaccine antibodies neutralize this mutated virus, next. And um, um, actually, I'll show you this data in a second. So, the one thing that has happened with the United Kingdom B117 mutation is there's a decrease in some of the molecular tests. So, genetic variations in, in SARS CoV 2, the UK mutation, can give you a false negative in some of the molecular tests. And there are two of them, or three of them, the FDA has tagged MISA, Biotech, TACPATH and the Linnea COVID-19 assay kit. So we just need to be a little careful now. Um, We don't know, I don't know about the other NAT tests, but it looks like some of the genetic variants um, may reduce the sensitivity of the nucleic acid detection tests that are out there. So something to keep watch on, next. This um, variant in the United Kingdom uh, has spread enormously fast. This shows you the proportion of the blue line is the proportion of virus that is the new mutation in the UK by week. And you can see over about three weeks, it just rocketed off to be about 35% of all new cases. So this is overtaking the UK as the dominant strain there. And one of the reasons they've had such trouble in getting their numbers down uh, in the UK right now. Next. So the good news on this, uh, these are preliminary data from Pfizer where they took um, uh, blood from people who'd been immunized with the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. Unfortunately, only 20 people so far. And then they looked at neutralizing against the N501 mutation uh, SARS-CoV strain. And you can see that the sera are just fine in in, in, uh, neutralizing a couple of the different mutant strains. So right now it looks like the Pfizer vaccine, there's probably more data, uh, this is a couple of days old. People are working hard on this right now. The good news right now is that the Pfizer vaccine appears to be effective against the UK mutant. I haven't seen Moderna data yet. Next. However, there's another variant now in South Africa. This strain uh, has the same N501 spike protein mutation as the UK strain but it also has a new mutation, E484K, that's in the receptor binding domain, and it appears that there's reduced protection of neutralizing antibodies um, because of this mutation. Next. And I'm gonna show you where that is. So if you look at um, A, uh, you can see, I'm sorry, look at B, you can see where the N501 mutation is, a small little area on the spike protein that's the binding site. But if you look over the top, the E484, which is the one in South Africa, is actually a larger part of the binding domain. And it may, it may be that um, that particular mutation reduces the bindings of antibody of sera, people who've immunized. We don't know yet. The other good news, however, is if it's true, then we can change the RNA sequence. We'll make a better vaccine that will get around this. So it is possible this could become like influenza, where we're going to need to have an annual immunization with a tweaked vaccine um, each year, we'll see. But the technology is there to allow us to accommodate this, but we're gonna need to be careful and watch this closely. Now, we know the UK strain is the United States, but we've not had extensive and aggressive surveillance, which we're going to need to start to do, next. Now I want to touch base on the, the Johnson Johnson vaccine is going to be coming out, uh, or at least at least going in front of the FDA at some point fairly soon, and then you've got the UK vaccine. These are both coronavirus. Uh, these are both uh, coronavirus vaccines that use an adenovirus vector. Uh, this adenovirus vector has um, DNA in it. And uh, that encodes, uh, it will, will be uh, transcribed to the RNA that encodes the spike protein. So the, uh, the adenovirus enters the cell, goes to the nucleus, and inserts the DNA into the nucleus, which is then transcribed to spike protein RNA. That's translated to spike protein. Next. You translate to spike protein, the spike protein comes out on the cell surface, and you make next You make an immune response to it similar to any of the other vaccines we've shown you where you have B cells and T cells uh, and antigen processing cells take in that spike protein and you make neutralizing antibody. Now, there's some question and worries about, for example, small children. um, Do you want an adenovirus vector inserting DNA into the nucleus of cells? And so we'll have to see where the FDA and the safety profiles and the phase three clinical trials for the Johnson & Johnson data look like? I I don't know the answer to that, and we will watch, but we may have other vaccines soon. And the Novavax recombinant spike protein, which is a simpler vaccine, also is in phase three. looks very promising, and I would expect that that will be available this summer as well. Next. So a couple of questions that have come up. Should people with previous COVID-19 infections be immunized? The CDC says yes, uh, immunize regardless of whether you've had COVID-19, because we don't know how long that protection uh, will last. Uh, You do not need an antibody test prior to being vaccinated. However, don't get vaccinated during the acute phase of COVID-19, wait a few weeks. uh, And uh, in, in fact, the 90 day period after you're infected you should be protected and you could wait during that entire period and get it at the end of that if you desire. So these are the official recommendations. We have been abiding by those, Connecticut Children's, and we are immunizing people who've had COVID, but we wait for the acute phase of the infection to be done. Next. And finally, um, the blood group question. This has been bouncing around for a year now. There's some new data came out in Annals of Internal Medicine, good data actually, and showing that, in fact, if you have O negative, your reduced risk of having SARS-CoV-2 infection. And you can see here they looked at risk um, based on blood type of, of 225,000 Canadians who had testing of SARS-CoV-2, and they followed to see whether they got ill or not. <clears throat> and you can see O, and particularly O negative, uh, was st- very statistically significant, less infection with SARS-CoV-2. So. I think these data are the best we've seen so far and and focus on O and O negative, and uh, probably these are correct. So blood group O has decreased risk. I do not know why, and I'm not sure we understand this yet. Next. So uh, we're at the good, the bad, and the weird. Remember, Dr. Salazar, I've migrated over to the Korean spoof of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I gave it to you in Spanish today, the good, the bad, and the weird. So I have many languages I can work through in this particular variation. So uh, the bad, the USA epidemic shows a second resurgence after the holidays. There's no national strategy to mitigate it. And we are filling up our hospital beds. I'm optimistic this will change with the new administration. The national immunization strategy hasn't existed. It's been state by state. We're gonna need to create some platform where there's similarity and the resources and infrastructure to immunize millions and millions of people. There's an ICU bed shortage in multiple states that's going to get worse before it gets better. And the new projections show the potential for 500,000 American deaths. However, the immunizations are starting. Essential workers have convinced in all states. Many states have begun immunization of the elderly. Connecticut is one of them. And the federal government will be releasing all available doses. And I think you know we are at the beginning of the bright light at the end of the tunnel, Uh, I do think no matter what the mutation is, I think we're going to have tremendous effect from the immunization. We will get to herd immunity this summer and uh, we will see um, at least uh, a partial end to this. Now, the weird weird is in the middle of all this, the reality of hospital beds and ICUs being filled and um, certain members of Congress during the occupation of the Capitol, when they were all forced to hide under a table, refused to wear a mask next to each other during the Capitol attack. So I I just find that remarkable. And uh, one of the Congress people, Congresswoman Green, um, was, was criticized for this and her office issued this statement. Congresswoman Green is a healthy adult who tested negative for COVID at the White House just last week. She does not believe healthy Americans should be forced to muzzle themselves with a mask. America needs to reopen and get back to normal. Well, it's a fascinating statement that shows lack of understanding that healthy individuals or asymptomatic spreaders spread the disease. In fact, maybe the biggest spreader of the diseases. It also seems not to understand that America cannot reopen and get back to normal until we control the pandemic. So that's the weird. Uh, despite the overwhelming reality of where we are, um, this is where certain leaders uh, uh, are. Now, I do think. We should probably offer mandatory tours for all of congress into icus uh, for an entire day they should have to sit there and uh, watch our healthcare workers manage all these sick people maybe we would perhaps get some reality testing this allows a fantastic entrance for dr class who's going to talk about how do we as pediatricians address these myths that uh, some of our leadership are promulgating dr class
2: thank you so much and what uh pleasure and a privilege to be here and what an honor and an education to listen to Dr. Schreiber. And I was thinking, listening to that remarkable summary, one of the pieces of the puzzle that connects to what I'm talking about is that not only have we seen this amazing heroic response by healthcare workers, as you talked about, by the the medical teams coping with the pandemic on the front lines, but we've also seen a truly remarkable response nationally and worldwide from scientists, in terms of how much we've learned, how quickly, how well information has traveled, how people have cooperated across national boundaries and put together this complicated, complicated puzzle. But just listening to Dr. Schreiber, I was thinking um, how much science is out there right now in the daily papers, in the daily news stories, for the general reader to comprehend. And I was thinking um, about how that compares to epidemics in the past, in terms of the complexity of information, epidemiologic concepts, R values, um, all of those numbers, all of that language, and then the mutations, the new strains, the strain of a virus. And honestly, when I taught science, when I taught science writing, when I've taught journalism. Um, and taught uh, writing about medicine and science, I very often started back in the old days from the idea that many people who think of themselves as educated um, don't actually know the difference between viruses and bacteria. And that the concept of, oh, no, that's a viral disease, that's a bacterial disease, they're completely different kinds of organisms, didn't necessarily resonate even with colleagues, even with professors, even with people who think of themselves as very well educated. So to go from the place as an educated member of the general public where the word virus doesn't really conjure in your mind a very specific kind of biological entity with particular problems and particular propensities to understanding the kind of scientific complexity that we were just listening to as contributing to your daily headlines, your advice columns, what should you do? Can my child visit grandma? Is it safe for my child to go back to school? It's a lot to ask of the general public, and that takes me to my topic, how pediatricians in particular, but medical practitioners of many, many different disciplines are dealing with fending off, responding to the various kinds of myths and misinformation which have traveled around about the coronavirus and what kinds of resources and advice are out there to help them in this role. So can I have that next slide? I wrote about this um, a couple of months ago in a column in the New York Times um, called How Pediatricians Are Fending Off Coronavirus Myths. And you'll see the headline there that doctors report misinformation at both extremes. And as I sort of surveyed pediatrician colleagues all around the country, what people were saying is that on the one hand, um, you know, I'm getting calls from parents who are still so anxious that they won't let the child go outside, even in a mask, even distanced, um, and other calls from people who are taking tremendous risks because they believe that children can't catch the virus or that um, they've done something or other which will keep the child safe and that there's this, a kind of um, disconnect in which you may, have, on the one hand, be trying to reassure people that it's okay to eat fresh fruits and vegetables and that they don't don't have to be boiled because of the risk of contagion. And then for other people, you may have to be going really back to basics and talking about. Yes, children not only can become infected, but children can play a role in transmission, which can put other family members at risk. And being caught in the middle like that has been a a sort of ongoing balancing act and complexity for pediatricians facing the issue of taking people's concerns seriously, respecting the different attitudes that parents bring to this, but first and foremost, making sure that none of these myths and misinformation put any children or any families at risk. And second of all, trying to help people understand this onslaught of information. Now, interestingly, um, uh, any of you who have written for the general public know that the writer chooses neither the headline nor the subhead nor the illustration. And the decision um, to illustrate this with a picture of someone pouring mouthwash out of a bottle in a cup was made because right around that There had been some interest in the question of whether mouthwash could fend off the coronavirus, and I had quoted one colleague in the column who had been asked about this and who had responded, this is a respiratory virus, I hope no one's pouring mouthwash in their nose, and one of the responses that I got to the column was that um, although there was no recommendation that people should do anything aggressive with mouthwash. There actually were some scientific studies looking at the effect of specific mouthwashes on viral carriage and that I, you know, not so much the column, but the picture might give people the impression that this was, um, you know, completely disconnected from science. And then again, it's really important to get the details right, to say, here's what we do know. Don't generalize this. Don't blow it out of proportion. Now, if you look at the little number on top of the picture, you'll see there's a number, I think it's 60 uh, something. Those are the numbers of comments that people had posted to the column. Um, and the comments are often interesting to read. Um, they give you a little sense of how the column is, the variety of ways that the column is landing. Can I have the next slide. Um, oh, this is a doctor who I, quoted in the column, a pediatrician based in New York, referencing this idea. I've seen misinformation in both extremes, pushing people toward bleaching their produce, avoiding all outdoor exercise. And then on the other hand, misinformation pushing people toward being blase about the virus. Next slide, please. Um, And this was a pediatrician in Wisconsin saying that there is this definite fear that goes in two very different directions. I suspect often based around one's political leanings because all this has become politicized. Um, that pediatricians are hearing both excessive concern and excessive lack of concern. Some parents going or feeling pushed to extremes. My child is absolutely fine and doesn't need to do any of these things or my child is going to die if they spend five minutes within 20 feet of a stranger. Next slide. So this is uh, to give you an example of the kind of comments that I got on this article, and um, you'll see that people actually write in to post to say, um, you know, you're worrying too much. Um, according to the CDC. Um, Barely over 100 of the people who died were under the age of 21, and most of them had some sort of predisposition and comparing it to flu and um, uh, pediatricians should be counseling parents that returning to schools, daycares and social activities is safe. The hysteria with which major news outlets have been covering the pandemic almost completely neglects to mention how rarely it affects children. And then immediately people write in to respond to that um, with other information. Uh, Over a million children have contracted COVID-19 or, quote, only a little over 100 dead children. That's quite a lot in a matter of months. Children do spread the virus. Um, And again, I don't usually get in there and respond to the comments. I sort of feel with the column that I've, I've had my space, I've said my say, and I you know don't know who's reading these questions and answers, but they give me a little sense of how things land. Next slide, please. And then um, here's another comment, but didn't the American Pediatric Association also say the kids need to be in school because more would die of suicide than would die of COVID? And this, I think, is an interesting comment because it gives you a sense of how different pieces get put together and spiral into misinformation. No, I don't think the AAP ever said kids need to be in school because if they're not in school, more will die of suicide than will die of COVID if they go to school. What you're putting, what you're seeing there is really pretty nuanced information coming out of the AAP saying school has an academic purpose but it also has a social purpose and we're worried about children's mental health and opening schools needs to be a priority if we can open schools safely. And here are the reasons that opening schools should be a national priority because we're worried about all of these different aspects of why schools are important. And then you see somebody putting that together into a baseless sort of equivalency send kids to school because if you don't, more will commit suicide than will catch COVID in school. And it gives you a little sense of how these different pieces of really carefully considered advice get knitted together into statements which are terrifying for parents to read. Um, and again, people responding to that. Um, next slide. Um, so I wanted to show you uh, one of the, um, pieces of pediatric advocacy, which did go viral on social media. This is Dr. Nicole Baldwin's TikTok video, which she originally made a year ago in which she was dancing about and talking about vaccines um, on TikTok. And um, she celebrated the anniversary of it with a repeat video, which you can also watch today. Um, I, I, I know we've, we've all commented on the irony of this language again and again. It went viral. Um, And she was advocating for vaccines and how great they are. And she posted a follow-up video um, a year later, just this January saying, you know, I'm still here in the same dress with the same stethoscope, um, still dancing about vaccines. Um, Next slide. What I wanted to say about that is that this public advocacy, especially on behalf of vaccines, but in general, this willingness to refute some of the myths and misinformation, which do have often political contact, is actually... volatile and can put people at some risk. And this doctor in particular received, this was before the pandemic when she made her original vaccine advocacy video, did receive threats, was attacked after the video was so successful and was so widely seen. And one of the strange aspects um, for many pediatricians who have been willing to play this role on social media, um, on mainstream media, in, in, in the press, is the level of hostility waiting for something as um, straightforward as a pediatrician advocating for vaccines. And I, I speak here from personal experience. The first time as a journalist that I ever got a death threat, it was for advocating the H1N1 vaccine and for writing a column talking about when we had the H1N1 vaccine arrived in our clinic um, and we were able to vaccinate all children, the strange experience of on the one hand, parents calling up and, you know, desperate to get their children immunized because the children had asthma or other underlying conditions and they were terrified and there were tabloid headlines every day about the dangers of H1N1 and can I bring him in and will you really give him the vaccine and thank you doctor, thank you doctor. And then the sort of strange experience after a phone call like that of walking into the room and having a parent flatly refuse the vaccine because it's experimental and it's dangerous. Anyway, I I wrote a column about that, that those strange days in clinic at that moment and woke up the next morning to to a death threat. And I think that we have to realize that the response that you get for this public advocacy actually does take a toll on people and that we need to think carefully both in our institutions and as a profession at how we're going to support the people who are willing to play this role. Next slide, please. Um, All through the pandemic, there's been a great deal of attention to the idea that there are myths out there about the coronavirus. I think that's something that people aware of the sort of politics, the social media presence have paid attention to from the very beginning. This is Johns Hopkins putting out um, what some of the myths are, and the myths are fairly persistent, that kids cannot catch it, that they're not contagious unless they're symptomatic that masks alone will protect you, that you can get it from pets, that hand hygiene doesn't matter. Next slide, please. Um, This is the Mayo Clinic. I gave you this reference in the list of references at the end, and again, you see a sort of real emphasis on the idea of debunking myths. And there are specific issues around antibiotics, around alcohol, drinking alcohol, um, protecting you, garlic, ultraviolet disinfection, 5G mobile networks. And there's been real attention, I think, all through Uh, This pandemic on the part of institutions, hospitals, medical schools and the CDC to try to collect some of the information and misinformation and deliberate disinformation that's traveling around. Next slide, please. I also want to point out that one of the things that's been an issue, and we all understand this and we all understand what's behind it, is that the correct information or the best possible information has changed during the pandemic. This is from last March and it's from a very well-intentioned, correctly sourced um, myth versus facts um, comic that was developed for children in Canada with all best advice and medical consideration. In March, the myth was you should wear a mask. And if you look at the fact and the correction is, if you're not sick, you don't need a mask. The masks need to be saved for nurses and doctors. And I think we all remember last March when that was the official advice. And I think when we deal with a public which is sometimes skeptical, we have to remember that we're not only giving out the best possible knowledge at any given point, we also have some responsibility to communicate how that best possible information may shift in a pandemic where there's more to be learned, more to be understood. And that that very basic information, that the fact that ideas and guidance are revised as we learn more, it means science is working. It means epidemiology is working. It means we're paying attention, we're learning, and we're not going to get stuck in dogma. But for the general public, it's sometimes very disconcerting that what was yesterday's myth can, in some cases, become today's fact. Next slide, please. So as I say, there's been a great deal of attention. Here you see a poster from the World Health organization and first priority has been to make sure that nobody does something which could actually harm themselves or their child do not under any circumstances spray or introduce bleach or any other disinfectant into your body and i think we all remember that this was something which in the united states actually um, was set off on social media and on mainstream media by a comment that the president made and there's the issue of people either failing to take precautions, which would really protect, as Dr. Schreiber just referenced, or also perhaps doing something in the desperate hope that if you do some very definitive thing, you're safe. You don't want people doing something which actually puts them or their children at risk, especially with substances as toxic as bleach. Next slide, please. Um, Again, here's another attempt at messaging, vodka won't keep you safe. Um, You know, the idea that you need to communicate as effectively as possible that some things are dangerous and that some things just don't make you safe. Next slide, please. Um, Here's another World Health Organization um, poster addressing a really persistent Um, myth, the idea that you were a a persistent belief that turns up again and again in different countries. It was extremely prevalent in Italy for a while that um, you might have it on your shoes, although you will see that the advice from the World Health Organization, although they are sort of um, you know, trying to reassure people, they are also basically telling them, leave the shoes at the entrance of your home, which is perfectly good advice, but people don't come away from that necessarily, feeling that they've been told, uh, as indeed they haven't, definitively that shoes are not a risk. Um, next slide, please. I'm um, just going to show you, these are from India, Um Two last um, myths that have one, which is really persistent, the idea that if you could hold your breath for 10 seconds, you were healthy. Uh, I can't tell you how many people in how many different walks of life came up with that one. And then one which I had not heard, um, which is that drinking silver. Um, can kill strains of the coronavirus. And again, just to emphasize the idea that governments, national health organizations have tried to, to monitor and to answer these myths as they arise, but there's clearly, they come into the exam room, they come up again and again on social media, and they just, as the virus does, they change, they mutate, they grow, and they turn up again, um, they're very, very, very hard to eradicate. Next slide, please. So some of the roles that we've seen pediatricians do that I've heard about from colleagues, obviously there's a daily responsibility of exam room and telehealth counseling, answering questions. It's been tremendously important to have pediatric presence on community groups and um, both local city, state, decision-making bodies to think about how, what guidelines are issued and what happens with um, group activities, Um, children's activities and schools. Um, The AAP Council on Communications and Media has been very active and very active on social media. There have been a lot of pediatricians posting to counter misinformation, playing an incredibly active role on Facebook, on Twitter, responding to the myths, coming in and playing the role of the guest expert, even though, as I've said, that can at times expose you to um, even fairly extreme reactions Um, making appearances on mainstream media, on TV and radio, and of course, um, both as through the American Academy of Pediatrics and in other capacities being involved in national advocacy and decision making. Um, Next slide, please. as we come now into, we hope, the era of vaccination and the chance to turn the corner, I'll remind you of what you all know, which is that we have a great deal of experience in pediatrics with issues of vaccine hesitancy um, and the question of how you talk to in many how you talk to adults, although in our case we're usually talking about vaccinating children, but how you talk to adults who are uncertain doubtful, scared around vaccines, and I think this is a place where, as the immunization campaign rolls out, pediatricians might really have something to offer, even if those being immunized at this point are going to be adults. The issues of vaccine hesitancy, the issues of talking people through um, their concerns about a new vaccine, that's something we know a lot about. Next slide, please. Um, I'll give, leave you with one other quote from the column I wrote, uh, important job for pediatricians to respond to questions in a manner that leaves people feeling that their worries and concerns have been taken seriously, not dismissed. People want to hope so badly, Dr. Nafsaria said. They want a solution that's so simple and easy so badly that they're willing to not interrogate these notions and even ask things that if you think about for a few minutes should be simple and obvious. I think that's the dream that there's some really simple and easy solution that all of us are missing. Next slide. And I've given you a list of resources, some aimed at providers, some that you might want to use to refer um, parents to, that more aimed at, at um, the general public. Thank you very much. And I'd be happy to take questions or comments.
0: Uh, thank you, Dr. Klass. Uh, very informative and practical information. Really appreciate it. And thank you, John. Uh, uh, Dr. Klass, we'll begin with a question for you. Uh, do you have any suggestions to improve self monitoring of fellows of the AAP who perpetuate or augment misinformation? Or, or how might the pediatric, pediatric training teach better science communication? If we can't even get the full buy in into science from board certified pediatricians, how, we, how could we better educate the public?
2: So I think there's two questions in there, both really important. One is the more general question of, should we be teaching better science communication skills? Should we be helping? And I think we are trying hard to do that on an individual basis. We're thinking more and more about, um, you know, comportment in the exam room and how you talk and how you phrase things, not necessarily completely successfully, but certainly around vaccine hesitancy we are. But I still don't think we're concentrating on those communicating with the larger general public skills. And I say this as somebody who regularly calls experts and sort of says, and, and I find myself saying to people, imagine that I'm a worried parent in your exam room how would you say this? How would you explain this? And I think that that question of how do, you, how do you explain complicated science to the general public is something that we need more and more to think about and, to, and, and talk about because obviously scientific literacy is going to be tremendously important going forward and people trust their pediatricians and we need to be able to build on that trust um, with people who are actually comfortable talking about this material for a general audience. But the second question, which is also important and which I'm not particularly qualified to give you a good recommendation on is, what do we do with the occasional person who has the credentials and is using them in a way that makes the rest of us very uncomfortable? What do we do with the person who's standing up and saying, "Um, actually, I have a medical degree and I'm telling you, this isn't true, that isn't true. When does difference of opinion cross the line to be something that you actually need to censure as a professional organization? And that's something we've seen in medicine play out pretty dramatically in this country in the last couple of months. And I think it's a, it's a challenge and it's something that we have to take seriously. Um, when you, you if you are, if we are throwing our professional weight behind certain concepts, we have to be willing to say at some point to someone, "You are no longer speaking as a pediatrician," I think, or with the weight of of, of the profession behind you.
0: Great, thank you, uh, John. We have a number of questions for you, uh, and and we'll try to go through as many as we can. Uh, when will we be able to modify the management of vaccinated employees with COVID pending? or COVID positive family members and how will that change?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think at the moment, remember, we're not sure whether the vaccine prevents colonization and transmission. So we know that it's gonna prevent getting sick for most people, but we don't know whether it could affect you becoming an asymptomatic carrier and infecting someone else. So until we reach herd immunity, I think, where you know most of the people next to you are immune, we're probably not gonna be able to back off on our public health measures. So right now, if you're immunized, you're doing everything you did before you were immunized. You're wearing a mask, you're washing your hands, you're being very careful, cause we just don't know yet whether you could acquire it and transmit it to somebody who's not immune.
0: A question about the variant strains, which I think is important. Could the negative test results on patients suspected of having COVID-19 symptoms be due to the variant strains not being picked up by the PCR testing?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I don't think yet, because the variant that is um, the FDA found very specific NAT tests that seem to have a problem with it, and most didn't. So right now, um, I I don't think I worry about it, but we need to watch that very closely. We need to know how uh, predominant these variants are in our community. And if, for example, one of them that we know evades some of the tests becomes a dominant strain, then you'd start worrying. But right now, it doesn't seem like that's true, but we need those that information. We need to be doing much more surveillance for the strains that are circulating in the U.S.
0: And related to the, uh, to the, to the variant strain, uh, uh, do masks still work? Does the six feet uh, uh, distance requirement need to increase? Uh, does it spread more easily on surfaces?
1: Uh, the answer would be the same rules are going to apply because you've got the droplets and you've got all of the same thing we've talked about over the last 12 months. All those same rules apply. What The difference in this virus is once it gets to you, it's binding better to the ACE2 receptor. But if it can't get to you, then you're not going to get it. So all the public health measures that we're doing are appropriate and just we need to double down on them for a few months until we reach herd immunity with immunization.
0: Thank you. Dr. Class. a question from our program director, Dr. Zonaritis, isn't there a big ethical boundary breached by not practicing competently within the scope of practice and perpetrating misinformation? Should this be part of peer review?
2: Don't you think? I mean, yes, it, but I think that one of the challenges that comes up um, that we're talking about is, you know, Um, where in peer review are you scrutinizing somebody's twitter feed where in peer review are you looking to see um you know where where people are going on social media what they are liking what they are agreeing with and one of the questions that comes up here is i showed you for example those anonymous comments on my on my column in the new york times there is nothing that stops you from going on there and saying, I just talked to my doctor and my doctor says, don't get the shot. It's dangerous. Um, And I always listen to my doctor, right? There's no There's no verification there. There's also really, there's nothing that stops you from going on there or on a much more widely looked at platform and saying, well, actually I have medical training and they threw me out of the profession because they didn't want to hear the truth I was telling, but I'm telling you this, that, or the other thing. And I think this is a little bit, we haven't figured out how we're going to watch that and how we're going to respond. I don't know, Dr. Shriver, do you have thoughts on this? I
1: think it's, you know, I think about Lyme disease, for example, where there's some professional people who think that long-term antibiotics have effect and they're treating people. Where there are others of us in infectious disease who don't think it has an effect, but where, where is the line between clinical practice where some variation is okay and clinical practice that's inappropriate? And I think we're not good at that yet. And it's, it's a great point and we're going to need to get much better at understanding that.
0: I'll have one for John. Uh, Dr. Klaas, do you have any thoughts about how we can better partner with our behavioral health psychology colleagues in addressing myths? For example, repeating a myth, even for the purpose of debunking it, can reinforce the myth.
2: It's a very good question, right? And it's one of the... So a couple of things I would say. One of the true comments that is often made about social media is that people seek echo chambers. You go on social, most people who go on social media select it so that the voices they're hearing reinforce them. That's true for me too. If you look at the people I follow on Twitter, they're epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists and pediatricians and they're going to be the people who um, know more than I do but who I basically agree with. And so one of the questions becomes how do you keep your attempt to correct something from turning, sort of going over to the other side where somebody's mockery of it or incorrect response to it then becomes, begins to reverberate and is echoed and echoed and echoed. I think there's a role for behavioral health, but honestly, I also think there's a role for people who think in terms of communication, social media, and how information spreads in this new world that we're all living in, Dr. Shriver.
1: Yeah, actually, I, I want to answer one of the questions that uh, Juan is on the uh, question sheet here. Um, it says that I implied the adenovirus-based vaccines may be more dangerous to cells. I, I want to get rid of the word dangerous. They're different. They insert DNA into the nucleus. It's more complex and it's different. Remember, you have a viral vector. The Johnson & Johnson is a human adenovirus that's non-replicative. The UK vaccine is a chimpanzee adenovirus. My only comment is they're a little more complex and we haven't seen the data yet. So let's get the data just like we did for the Pfizer, and the Moderna, let's look at it, let's have it transparent and drill down on that and understand it better. That was really my point. Um, we just don't have the data yet. So I, I didn't want to correct that on, on, the, uh, on the answers. Yeah,
0: th- thank you for clarifying that, very good. Uh, it, it's uh, 9.01 and uh, people have to get back to their office. Um, I, I, so I want to finish here, we'll, unfortunately we couldn't answer all the questions, a lot of uh, participation. So thank you, Dr. Class, for joining us. I look forward to reading your, uh, your, your uh, New York uh, Times post and your new book. Uh, thank you, John, for providing excellent information, and uh, thank you all of you for joining us. It's been a, a delight having you, uh, over 220 people joined today, this, which is fairly typical for us, and then people then go online and actually look at this again. So please be safe. Have a good week and we'll see you again next Friday. And thank you both. Bye-bye. Bye.
2: Okay.